You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Hello and welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie and right now we are live with our Facebook Live channel. So thank you so much if you are live and tuning in. Uh, today is going to be a pretty interesting day, and I know that that's a relatively common lead-in, but uh, it is in particular uh, of interest to me because this is something we're going to be talking about today that I have practiced and I have done um, off and on intermittently, some would say, uh, so that I can speak to it from a place of experience, but I also have a lot of questions with what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, and and with the guest that we have today, and I'm excited to have him because not only has he compiled some research on, on the topic of intermittent fasting and time-restricted feeding, but um, he's also helped to contribute as a subject matter expert with some of the work that he's done with us at NASM. So let me introduce to you, have him introduce himself to you, Danny Lennon. Hey, man, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you so much, Rick. It's an absolute pleasure, and uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Awesome, brother. Can you tell us just a little bit about your background academically, some of the stuff that you may have done with NASM? And then I, I and then I read an article that you had written. So I want to get into some of the content in that article and some of the discussion around time restricted feeding. Sure. So I think the overview for people, the interesting things they may want to know is just some context uh, of my background is I did an undergraduate degree in biology and physics education. Um, and following that, after teaching for a year, those subjects realized my main passion of nutritional science was something I wanted to get back into. So I did a master's degree in nutritional sciences and off the back of that set up a company called Sigma Nutrition with the goal of putting out evidence-based educational content around nutrition science and then also related health science too. And that's been going for the past six and a half years approximately and in that time probably has become most well known for the podcast sigma nutrition radio as well as other things like seminars uh, that that i put out um, and other pieces of content including written format which is one of the articles you may have seen around this concept of chrononutrition which we may explore today um in relation to my work with nasm i was uh, honored to be part of writing for the nutrition course um, so that was a, an amazing project to work on with the team there. And I also spoke and gave two lectures at the NASM Optima conference uh, last year, which was amazing, especially getting I missed to see you. Ah. I know that it was only afterwards. There were so many great people that I, I could have seen and I only realized afterwards uh, it was a, uh, a packed four days of seeing people as it was. So sure. uh, hopefully in the future when the world has some normality back, that may be a, a future time that we can do it. So, um, and as of right now, uh, me as well as some of my colleagues here at Sigma Nutrition, we're also working on the uh, weight loss specialist um, product that NASM is is working on, which I'm really excited for too. So, uh, that's a bit about me. Um, but I'm happy to get into any more details as you wish. Uh, I do wish. So let's let's start just diving right in. I think one of the the things that you mentioned here when you were doing the lead-in was chrononutrition. Now, that's not, um, it's not a name that 
that maybe just a, a lay person would hear. Um, maybe even uh, a, a typical trainer uh, would hear chrononutrition. I think you can break it down and kind of estimate and guess what that means. But can you just talk us through what that is and what you guys have been doing around it? Absolutely. And I think it's not a term that's being used all that often, even in other spheres, including academia. It's more a uh, more recent branch of research that's evolved really from the intersection, I, I suppose, of two different fields. One would be, I'm sure many of the trainers have heard of at least the concept about our circadian rhythms, that there's these different processes within the body that have a pattern that runs over the course of the day, this 24-hour rhythm that we call a circadian rhythm. They probably will have heard about that and talked about in the context of light and dark exposure or our sleep, for example. And that's been one field and this area of chronobiology more broadly. And we then all, we've also looked at how nutrition impacts various metabolic processes. So this would be our calories, macronutrients, et cetera, all the good stuff that we typically talk about. And now we have this intersection of those two fields where potentially where we place our food intake and the timing and also the proportion of those meals across the day may have an influence on our circadian rhythms and therefore our overall health. And so that's where this idea of, of chrononutrition came for. So at its most simple, it's looking at the impact of our nutrition to influence our circadian rhythms and therefore our health, but also how our circadian rhythms may influence when maybe a better or worse time to consume food. And that, that's a general idea behind that field. Mm -hmm. And then probably what people have been most exposed to is one of the ideas that has sprung from that field has been the concept of time-restricted eating. So eating your food within a certain feeding window and then having a prolonged fasting window. Um, a lot of the times people get exposed to that from the fitness scene based around intermittent fasting and it's a way to easily restrict calories, for example. But there's also time-restricted eating came from the concept around how we're trying to fit that into the biological day, essentially. If we restrict our feeding window, is that better from a chrononutrition perspective is a question that we could ask and has sprung a lot of this research around a restricted feeding window. Um, and we'll, we can clarify that more as this comes on, but that's a general overview of what some of those terms may mean. I like it. And um, there, there's been a lot of research that's come out lately, r really wonderful research about um, sleep. And thankfully so. And we understand the importance of sleep. We're understanding it uh, from a research perspective more and more. And this term circadian rhythm keeps popping up. And um, just the, the term circadian just means circular. And, and, and it's just the, just think about our circle around the sun. It's the rhythm of the day. But there are also, you know, we'll, we'll break things up into weeks and we'll say, hey, you can work out so many times, you can get so many minutes of exercise in a week. Or there's a monthly cycle for half the population of the world. Um, there is an annual cycle where things go on. So we see this idea of, of, of time and how it relates to rhythms or certain happenings that occur. Um, I think for a very long time, and I don't know if this is just culturally something that's developed, but we have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And that's kind of your, your three meals, your three feedings, and then there might be some grazing or snacking throughout the day. And then, and then suddenly, 
it just started coming at us, Danny. Like from every angle, this is the way you should eat. This is a type of eating. This is a type, eat this many meals. Don't eat that, restrict this. Um, where where are we going with this conversation? I mean, what what's happening in this world and what is the research actually feeding us when it comes to what um, may be something that had been happening obviously religiously for a very long time, which is fasting, um, you know, and what does that look like in a day? But what does that look like beyond a day? And what do you have any research that addresses um, both of those things? So what is this kind of daily intermittent window that we see? And then what happens after a day or two days? And what is, do we have any research that's showing fasting for multiple days? Yeah, so I think this is a really important concept to clarify some terms on because often people think about this concept of intermittent fasting as if it's one thing. And really intermittent fasting is an umbrella term for many different uh, types of protocols that someone may have with their nutrition. As you quite rightly uh, outline, Rick, it could be on a daily basis, we may choose to just restrict our feeding within a certain window as time-restricted eating, as, as we may later get to. But it could also be alternate day fasting, where every second day someone has a day of fasting. It could be once a week someone does a 24-hour or 36-hour fast, which are becoming quite popular. Or it could even be extended fasts where people are fasting for multiple days. So there's all these different permutations of types of fasts that we just put under this umbrella of intermittent fasting. And that's usually why I think it's important to distinguish between time-restricted eating and this term intermittent fasting, because time-restricted eating allows us to be quite precise in that we're talking about over 24 hours, what does that eating window and that fasting window look like? For example, you're going to eat within these eight hours and fast for the rest of the day. Whereas intermittent fasting could mean that but it also could mean you choose to fast one day a week or you fast for three days every month or something, okay. as you've outlined. So there's a, a slight distinction there in, in terms. Um, and both of those can be viewed quite differently. I think just from a broad level as an overview, what I would say to people is to be wary of cases where you see someone claiming that they know what the optimal fasting is that solves all these myriad of problems. Because... There's so many, when we think about, there's different parts of that equation, let's say to put, pick a fasting protocol, we could pick how long are we going to fast for? So how many hours or days is this fast going to last? Then how frequently are we going to repeat that fasting protocol? And then during that fast, is it going to be a complete fast? Like we only consume water or are we going to allow a, maybe a small certain amount of calories, which you would see in something like alternate day fasting, where on fasting days, people usually consume about 400 calories, for example. So there's these three different variables. Now, if we were to start coming up with different combinations of those three things, there's almost an endless number of types of fasting strategies. And to think that we would have tested them all with research now to know the one true answer doesn't really make any sense. But what we can do is try and approximate what generally do we see our beneficial things from, from research that may be a good heuristic that people could start trialing. And that's why I think the concept of time-restricted eating can be quite useful because even if we don't know precisely everything about it right now, or is 12 hours better than 10, or how much better is a nine-hour window than 11, like all these little nuanced questions, we can still get a general idea 
that when someone restricts their feeding window, we get these certain types of effects. And, and we can debate about why they are happening, and that's kind of interesting. But I think for right now, um, that's why that there's lots of useful things that are emerging from the area of time-restricted eating that I think are, are worth people being aware of, at least. Well, with that being said, you kind of get a open uh, a can of worms because I want to know then what is the stuff that people are making claims to uh, for for this time restricted feeding that doesn't actually uh, pan out in the research or at least currently where we are in the research or as you mentioned in the article what are the overhyped claims for time restricted feeding mm. so um there's probably plenty out there if people went looking that are just obviously nonsense but we can kind of <laughs> generally skip over that when people have certain types of wacky protocols. The more interesting stuff is things that may be true, but we just like don't know yet. And people talking with a degree of certainty and using certain types of buzzwords that make it sound like they're talking science when they're not really. And I think this is very common for us to get sucked into. Um, one example would be someone saying, oh, you need to have your fast for this many hours because this is the time point where we maximize autophagy, right? This is the kind oh, of yes. nice buzzword we hear all the time in fasting. And, and true, with extended fasts, that is one of the things that increases this process called autophagy. And for people unfamiliar, essentially you can think of it as uh, cleaning out certain damaged parts of the cell. Um, and that's a very oversimplification, but for the moment we can think of it that way. And so in general, it can have some beneficial uh, impacts. However, that's not all the time. Um, and there are other things that are actually have a much more pronounced impact on autophagy. For example, exercise is the, probably the most potent that we know of. And then we also can't directly measure it in uh, research settings. So to say, as soon as you must wait exactly 16 hours, so you maximize the autophagy and if you go any less then you're not benefiting from it for example it's something where someone is talking in an absolute manner that may not actually be reflective of what we're seeing um, similarly if someone says the optimal way to implement a fasting strategy is this exact many hours for your feeding window and this exact many hours for your fasting window and that is better than all others also doesn't really make much sense because there's all these different permutations we can come up with and trying to compare those is, is very difficult. Um, so it's more the statements that are very absolutist uh, that I would say are the ones to be wary of. Whereas if someone is giving some degree of context or a bit of nuance to it is probably more likely to be accurate. I like it. And I, we, I was just having a conversation on Friday with a dietitian. Uh, based out of New York City, her name's Farrah Khan, and I asked Farrah, I said, why Why are so many people into these, um, into fad diets? And really, it's the same way when people ask us a question about fitness. They want to ask us a question, and nobody wants to hear the words, it depends. They want to hear, this is exactly what you do. And, and I think there are sometimes well-meaning researchers that understand that I can't give you the spectrum because you can't follow a spectrum. It's very difficult. But if I give you something exact to do, then maybe you'll stick to it. So I, I understand why it's being put out there. But it's also very important for us within our NASM community, our fitness community, to know that 
we need to have an understanding of the spectrum. We don't need to pick the diet and say this is right. We have to have education around the concepts of all of it, and that's really valuable. Uh, it's really valuable for you to point out. So thank you for for taking us down that road. Yeah, no, I think you actually touched on something really important for practitioners, and that's understanding the difference between communicating ideas at a broad public level versus what you may talk to one individual client privately about. So for example, if you do decide, hey, this client might respond really well to his time-restricted eating protocol. I noticed they don't really get bothered about having breakfast in the morning. So we can just push their breakfast back a bit and restrict their feeding window. I think it might be good even from a behavioral standpoint. Then you could give that person a clear rule of you're going to have an eight-hour feeding window. I think that will something we're going to try and that might be really good for you. So there you're giving an exact timing. But what you're not doing is going publicly and saying everyone needs to use time restricted eating and everyone needs to do it in this precise way. The same way you can have a certain type of dieting strategy with one individual client, but you would never say all of my clients need to eat this way. So I think there's just a difference there between who we're communicating to and like you said, why the practitioner needs to understand the nuance even if they're not going to communicate that to each individual all the time. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to ask you this question, Danny, and I know that you get asked it and this happens every time. I've heard that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And so now you're giving me a window to, to eat or to not eat. Should I have an a.m. window of feeding or should I skip breakfast? And for those listening to the podcast, there are quotation marks there. Should I skip breakfast and then move on into my my noon to eight window? Um, can you just talk us through the breakfast question? Mm. Yeah, this is actually one of the most interesting questions within the time-restricted eating research right now. Essentially, is it better to have an early feeding window versus a late feeding window or does it matter if we equate time is essentially what we're asking here. And for when we look at some of the mechanisms based on how this may be beneficial from a um, circadian perspective, it would lead you to think, yeah, maybe having earlier or more of your calories earlier in the day can be beneficial. And there's various different mechanisms we can talk to if you wish. But for example, we know there's a circadian rhythm to um, insulin sensitivity that starts highest at the start of the day and decreases throughout the day. We also know if you compare the exact same meal, so same foods, same calories, same macronutrients, and you eat that meal in the morning versus say at 2 a.m., there's a very different metabolic response. So your blood glucose response is different even though you've eaten the same meal based on time of the day. So you could then hypothesize, well, maybe it's better to have at least slightly more of our calories earlier in the day. Now, when we've tried to, or when the research groups have looked at this question, there's only really been one, maybe two studies that I'm aware of that have directly compared a time-restricted eating strategy with an, eight, uh, an early versus a late window. Um, in that study, um, there was no real difference in most of the markers they looked at. The only one that reached statistical significance was a slight difference in mean glucose. So in other words, someone's blood sugar across the day, when you add that up for the whole 24 hours, was slightly higher in the group that was the late feeding window, which might suggest there's some glycemic impact 
pact, but it was quite a small difference. So overall, it seemed, at least from that study, there wasn't a big difference. Um, however, many of the groups within the chrononutrition um, research space would hypothesize it's probably better to at least proportionally have a bit more of your calories earlier in the day for a number of reasons. And there's some studies that have looked at that. So that's one part of it, that there does seem to be good rationale that not at least not having a large proportion of your calories right at the end of the day, that actually probably is a relatively decent um, recommendation, particularly for people who are trying to control their blood sugar. Now, the other question then comes to breakfast. And this is where it becomes, a, again, a bit more of a gray area. What I think is probably fair to conclude right now is that even if you're going to go with the idea of more calories slightly early in the day, there's probably no need for someone to think they must eat breakfast as soon as they wake up. So what it may mean is that it might be a good idea to have some food intake in the early part of the day, and you probably don't want to save up all your calories for the very end just before you go to bed. However, you probably don't need to rush to eat breakfast immediately. Um, and again, that's still a... I would say an area that's probably inconclusive because we have quite a lot of the epidemiology suggests that eating breakfast is a good idea, or at least skipping breakfast is associated with certain outcomes. But what we then is interesting to think about, especially as we've just talked about time restricted eating, is that maybe it's this duration of someone's eating window that is the problem. So people that are having um, let's say that typically skip breakfast, it might not be the skipping of the breakfast that's a problem. It could be that they're therefore going to eat later in the day. So they're having a larger meal just before bed. So is it that that's a problem or is it the actual skipping of breakfast? Because when we see time-restricted eating window strategies or our time-restricted eating strategy where you delay someone's breakfast, but you also pull up their final meal of the day, so not eating right at the end of the day, and you have the shortened window, you don't see those negative impacts. And in fact, that's one of the most common um, strategies that we've seen in some of the human trials. And what I like about something like that is a very easy recommendation to give. So for example, there was a paper that came out of the University of Surrey in the UK, a pilot trial, where they had people use a time-restricted eating strategy. The only recommend, or the only um, recommendation they asked people to follow was, can you take your normal breakfast time and just delay it by an hour and a half? And then your final meal of the day, can you just bring that forward by an hour and a half? And that was the only information they were given. They weren't counseled about what foods to eat. They weren't told to change anything. They weren't uh, made any recommendation about foods to consume or any other targets except for that change in those times. And with that, you saw reduced overall caloric intake and therefore you see weight loss and improvements in blood glucose. Now that was just one pilot trial but the reason I like bringing that up is it shows that there could this could be a useful strategy at a practical level for many practitioners that particularly for clients who are maybe new to the nutrition stuff that you don't want to bombard them with lots of information and be telling them about macronutrients or getting really deep in the weeds um, or they just don't like getting into too much of that straight away. But by giving this simple recommendation we know it's going to have a knock-on impact on their overall intake. So now we're going to be able to control intake without even mentioning the word calorie to them, potentially, for some yes. people. Um, so I think that's the, the, the punchline, I would say, around breakfast is where I would currently conclude things, is that it's probably not necessary to immediately go and get a big breakfast as soon as you wake up. Um, however, the 
other side of it is some of the intermittent fasting strategies that are common in the fitness space of I'm not going to eat until the afternoon, but save lots of my calories for this big, massive meal right before bed might not be the best for some people, particularly those that are looking at this from a glycemic standpoint. Yeah, I, I would be one of those people. So I'm, I'm type two diabetic. And this is another reason why I had mentioned in practice, this is something that I've put together. So um, is there indeed um, uh, increased insulin sensitivity that tends to happen when you restrict feeding like this? Yeah, so there's first in most of the time-restricted eating trials, one of the most reliable um, findings in human trials has been that impact on glycemic markers. So overall glucose for the day as well as insulin. Now, one of the things that people would probably quite rightly point out is, as we've seen in most uncontrolled situations, we tend to see a lot of people end up reducing their overall intake and actually losing weight quite effectively from some of these strategies, even without being counseled about calories and so on. And we know that with weight loss, um, that tends to improve some glycemic markers a lot of the time as well. Um, so the question is, in cases where there is no weight loss, do we also see improvements in glycemic markers? One study that was looked at this kind of last year was um, a, the lead author on it was Sutton, I, I think um, came out of um, Courtney Peterson's lab. They looked at, again, that early time-restricted feeding practice. So in that particular study, I think they ate from maybe 7 or 8 a.m. until 3 p.m. was their final meal. So quite an extreme version of it uh, to see what would happen. And they set up their intake so that no one would lose weight. So no one lost weight throughout that study, but you saw improvements in insulin sensitivity, you saw improvements in blood pressure, and, and I believe some markers related to oxidative stress. So that was one of the papers that suggests even without weight loss, there are potential benefits here. Um, and the reason why that was significant is because mechanistically, that kind of makes sense, or that's what we might expect to see, because we've seen in other trials, um, a lot of them are in rodents, but there are some in humans as well, that when you partition more of the calories to earlier in the day, you bet, get better overall blood glucose uh, control. For that reason I said earlier, you have a circadian rhythm to your insulin sensitivity naturally that's highest in the morning and decreases throughout the day. You will get, also get the same thing with beta cell function. And uh, for people unfamiliar, the beta cells are what are secreting um, insulin. And so if you have better beta cell function and better um, insulin sensitivity in the earlier part of the day and more of your calorie intake is partitioned there versus towards the end of the day, that may mean that you have to have less, say, insulin secretion across the day, or you're able to bring blood glucose back down within range uh, more easily, for example. So that would give at least some mechanistic basis to why there may be better improvements in some of those markers with not only a time-restricted eating model, but certainly trying to think about your proportion of your food intake and not having a large amount of it left for nighttime feeding, let's say. I like that. Well, I'm going to ask you another question that anybody would ask when the, the idea of delaying breakfast comes up, which is, what about my coffee? So this is a, probably the most common question a lot of people get yeah. when they're talking about <laughs> fasting. And it usually goes, 
does having a coffee break my fast? Or they might say, does having a protein supplement break my fast? Or does X fill in the blank break my fast? Um, and there's kind of two sides to this. First, technically, if there's going to be some degree of caloric value to something and there's going to be nutrients there for your body to metabolize, then technically we could say, yes, that is breaking your fast per se. But the other question then is, is that what we really care about? So what is someone's goal of having a fasting window? If they're having a fasting window where they're using it as a time to um, not consume food, let's say, and they're doing it for calorie restriction purposes, then it, it virtually doesn't matter if they have an Americano of that's 10 calories, um, even if technically their body has to metabolize some of that caffeine, for example. So it's irrelevant in most cases that if people are doing it from that perspective. Um, in relation to the um, kind of time-restricted eating circadian viewpoint, the technical answer seems to depend on who you talk to and which researcher would, would, would give their view on this. Um, I think what we do know happens when we consume uh, caffeine or, or let's say have a black coffee um, in the morning is that that nutrient ingestion does actually get detected in uh, by things related to the circadian system. So it actually acts as a stimulus to the uh, circadian system, which is actually typically we could think of as a good thing. Now, how much of an impact that has, it's hard to say. Um, bring it to a practical level. I would say if someone is doing a time-restricted eating protocol and they say, I'm not going to eat my first meal until say 10, 30, 11 a.m., whatever they pick, but they have a just a, a black coffee with, with nothing else at 8 a.m., is that going to be problematic? No. I would still think their eating window is from the time they have that first meal. So I, I don't think it's problematic to do so, um, particularly when we have to think about this pragmatically and from a behavior standpoint, that there's this benefit to having this restricted eating window. But now if we tell people to do this, you're not allowed to have coffee in the morning, you're dramatically impacting the likelihood of adherence to this protocol, which is actually one of the most beneficial things about this like it's a relatively simple protocol for people to understand it it may not be easy initially but it's not that daunting to make some slight changes to our timing um so trying to go against that by giving people these rules of leaving out coffee may not be the best strategy from a practical viewpoint okay good because it didn't matter what you said the answer was, I'm still gonna have my coffee. My question was, do I have coffee and start my time-restricted feeding window at that time, or can I have coffee and start it later on in the day? So it's probably more what my question was. And and ultimately, if you said, hey, it's, you have coffee, the, the, the switch flips, then I go, all right, that's where I start my window. And, and that's what I would do. But um, I do drink my coffee black. I do not put anything into my coffee. So I'm hoping that that my, my fast continues until I'm actually ready to break that fast. Um, I want to also mention something kind of similar into the vein, something you were talking about, which is compliance and adherence. And with that, you know, if we talk about a window and we say, okay, the best window hypothetically would be, you know, early in the morning and, or the best window would be late at night. Um, 
we do that with fitness a lot of times. We'll say, hey, one of the best workouts that you could do is this. Um, but you can't stick to and you can't, then it doesn't matter that you've been armed with the best information if you can't apply any of the information. And we do that societally very often where we go, oh, if I can't do it perfectly, then I will do nothing at all. If I can't get in 150 minutes of cardio every week, then I will do a total of zero minutes because if I can't do it right, then I won't do it at all. Um, I think here what we're looking at is the option for Windows. Um, and with that option being put out there, Danny, uh, a common thing that we see is this eight hour feeding window. Is that kind of the, the more common, the eight hour of feeding and the 16 hour of fasting? But like many things, in circadian science and what people have been researching, um, the most important thing with your sleep, uh, many researchers will look at and agree to, is not necessarily that you get less sleep, but you go to sleep at the exact same time and you wake up at the same time. So you're, it, is, it is the timing. So would they prefer that you sleep a full eight hours? Yes, but if you cannot, Ideally, they want to say, hey, if you go to bed at 10 and you get up at 6, that is better. Or if you can't get the full eight hours, then let your window be from 11 to 5. And if those are the only hours that you get to sleep, those six hours, then the most important thing you can do is stick with 11 to 5 and keep your body in rhythm. Do we know anything about this kind of intermittent um, diet that we see, this time-restricted feeding, that if you do uh, a morning feeding, should that be your thing? Or an evening feeding and that is your thing? Or is it kind of like fitness also, which is, can you vary it and still get good results out of it? Yeah, this is a really, really good question. And I think you're absolutely right in relation to sleep, that consistency of sleep and wake timings is, is very important from a circadian perspective. And it seems to be similar with the feeding as well, in that it seems quite clear that what in the research would be referred to as erratic eating, so wildly different uh, meal times and even meal frequencies from day to day can have worse um, and they're depending on the metric we're looking at a lot of times that could be a glycemic marker or other metabolic marker that there tends to be better if you have consistent timings. So, uh, one phenomenon that we see quite commonly where people see a shift in their meal timings is between the weekday and the weekend. Yeah. And in research, they've actually started to refer to this as social jet lag in that we know that jet lag comes about when people travel time zones and that leads to certain degree of symptoms because their body clock or their circadian clocks have shifted by a certain number of hours. And so trying to readjust then leads to these certain symptoms of jet lag. The same thing can happen if we can shift our uh, sleep and wake timing, which happens from during the week to the weekend. People typically sleep in. Um, at the weekend, they also go to bed later on a Friday and Saturday, presuming we're talking about the person that's working at, let's say, a Monday to Friday, nine to five type job, sure. then that will be a typical change we see. With those changes, we also see the same with their food intake, that their first meal of the day typically will shift maybe by a couple of hours. And they'll also probably have their final meal or larger meals later in the evening. So rather than having their typical dinner, maybe at 
5 p.m. or 6 p.m., they may wait and have a meal out with friends at 10 or 11 p.m., right? Which is not necessarily problematic um, because we want people to enjoy life. But con done consistently, what that leads is this change in sleep and wake time, this change in feeding times for these two days. And that creates a shift, in, a circadian phase shift, we call it, that when Monday rolls around then, now someone is waking up with an alarm clock and having a meal earlier. And so now you have this uh, mismatch between what their body has just um, has been shifted to over the weekend. So this is the idea of social jet lag. And what this speaks to is that we have this interaction between the circadian component or the circadian clocks in our body, but we also have these different pathways that we call nutrient sensing pathways. So this collection of um, receptors and enzymes and hormones are all orchestrated to notice when certain nutrients come in. Probably the best example is one that'll be quite familiar to you if we're talking about blood sugar control, is that we know that insulin gets released when blood sugar goes up, right? So blood sugar or blood glucose increases, then we release insulin, insulin comes out, attaches to an insulin receptor and gives a signal to essentially say, we want to get some of this sugar or glucose from the blood into a cell, therefore bringing blood glucose back down to normal. That's a process I think people may have been aware of. So in order for us to have that insulin release, our body first needs to sense that this nutrient glucose is around in higher amounts than usual. So we have these ability to sense when nutrients have came into the body or not. Now, what happens is we essentially can, because of these things, have an anticipatory effect built up that our body is designed to be able to anticipate when we're likely to eat. So this is driven by habitual meal times, let's say. And when we match that up with when we're best able to handle meals, again, talking about the circadian rhythms, then that can essentially be beneficial. When there's a mismatch between those is when we can have problems. A most obvious example of a mismatch between our feeding intake and our normal circadian rhythms would be someone who does shift work. And then their yeah. first day on shift work, now they're having to eat during the middle of the night. They're mm -hmm. eating at a time when their body is not anticipating that, that they've had anticipated to eat earlier. Now, our body is pretty good at adapting in some manner at least. So when we sense this new intake, that's why we have this circadian shift that I talked about that happens on the weekends and leads to this social jet lag. So there's this interaction of both the, that circadian perspective as well as our bodies able to anticipate when we usually consume meals. And so going back to your original question, this is why having consistent meal timings can potentially be beneficial because we have this anticipation of this is when we're going to be consuming meals. We can have those metabolic processes ready to run at those times, again, for, from an oversimplified perspective. So if we're having a dramatic change in that from day to day, it may be problematic. And there's a couple of studies that suggest this where they had one group consume the same uh, meals. So like three main meals and I think two to three snacks per day, but at the exact same time every day for two weeks. And the other uh, group had anywhere between three to nine meals per day, but changed every day over the course of those 14 days. So it could be three, then seven, then four, eight, and so on every day. And at the end of that you two weeks, you see differences in, I believe, fasting glucose and fasting insulin. Um, I could be wrong on the exact measures, but some of the glycemic markers um, just because of differences. And that was matched for overall calories in both those conditions. Um, so we see that tends to happen. Um, and we know that 
this erratic eating can be relatively common um, in the same way that we know that typically in the population, a lot of people eat with quite a large or long feeding window. So with that, whilst we still need to work some more stuff out, that would lend me to be um, conclude that it's probably a good idea to have some regular meal times from day to day. Not that you have to set your stopwatch to it exactly, but approximately that your meals are coming at around the same time day to day. So I do have a question because, you know, everything depends on oftentimes what your goal is. So why do people actually do time restricted feeding? In many instances, we're looking at um, insulin sensitivity, maybe for somebody with diabetes, or we're looking with um, an, an easier window where we can restrict calories. But what if we're looking at uh, fit populations where uh, maybe I want to build muscle, I want to hypertrophy, or I want to, um, uh, you know, I, I'm playing sports, right? So I want to have the performance level that I need to have. How does this intermittent fasting deal with that? And I know that, you know, we talk about this idea of multiple meals throughout the day, uh, particularly for hypertrophy-based athletes. Um, is there a correlation? Is there anything where you're like, oh, in that case, um, eat, <laughs> eat throughout the day? Uh, or is there still an opportunity for this time-restricted feeding to fit into performance-based lifestyles? Yeah, really, really important question. And it's one of the things that um, I'm acutely aware of when this topic comes up, of trying to be clear in, in what applications we're talking about it. Um, and so most of our discussion so far has been from a general health perspective, as well as maybe body weight regulation or even a fat loss perspective. That's someone's yes. goal. These could be useful tools in all of those areas, um, although they don't necessarily need to be used. I think we, sh we should be very clear on that. There's several caveats that I, I tend to try and point out within this area. Um, one is like you say, we first always need to take in the priority goal of any client. So if a client's goal, like you say, is I just want to build the most amount of muscle mass as I possibly can, then again, looking from the nutrition literature, we know that we probably want to have around four-ish plus high-protein meals spread evenly across the day, and that if that person was to fast until, say, 1 p.m. before the first meal, we've essentially missed out on at least one high-protein feeding that would allow them to maximize that anabolic response, that muscle protein synthesis response that would be useful to their goal. Now, for a lot of people, it may not be that important. For a bodybuilder trying to maximize every bit of muscle they can, then we're going against their main goal, right? So there's definitely cases like that. There's other cases where we know some clients are struggling to eat enough food already. You may be working with a collegiate athlete who's a swimmer and needs to have thousands and thousands of calories every day because they're spending hours and hours in the pool. And now by us trying to shrink their feeding window and they're already struggling to eat enough calories, we're just gonna make things even harder. So again, it's going against their goal and it's also just not thinking about what this strategy is likely to do. Is it making it harder or not? Um, the same thing applies to many type of athletes. Uh, for example, I've worked with quite a lot of uh, mixed martial arts athletes who would have multiple training sessions per day. And so again, if they're training in the morning and the evening time, it would make no sense for me to say, oh, everyone needs to have an eight hour 
uh, feeding window when really we want to be able to fuel them before and after both of those workouts across the day, as well as get them enough fuel in. Um, so there's definitely those. Uh, the other one from a more general fitness perspective is that there people's training and exercise habits can actually offset some of the downsides that we see with, say, late night eating. So I already mentioned that having those larger meals in the evening may be problematic because we're less insulin sensitive. So you may get a higher blood glucose response. Mm -hmm. However, what we know is that after exercise and resistance training is particularly good at this, is it causes the movement of a glucose transporter to come to the edge of a muscle cell. So all that means is there's these transporters that allow that sugar in our bloodstream, that blood glucose, to move into the cell that we mentioned earlier. Now, the contractions that happen, say, in resistance training and other types of uh, high-intensity exercise can allow these transporters to move to the edge of a muscle cell. What that means is now we're actually in a really good position to get glucose or sugar to move from the bloodstream into that muscle cell after that training session even without insulin. It's called an insulin-independent process. So now, even if we are technically a bit less insulin-sensitive in the evenings or are we're a bit more insulin-resistant, it won't matter here if we've done some exercise, particularly some lifting, that now we can have a meal with lots of carbohydrate and we actually can effectively dispose of that glucose. So again, depending on that population, it, it matters a lot. There's also the question we could probably it's fair to say that someone who is um, very healthy metabolically is probably going to be able to, um, or it may not have the same benefit that someone who isn't would glean, right? So there's a lot of benefits someone could have to getting better um, glycemic control in certain cases. For others, they may already have pretty good glycemic control already. So the magnitude of the benefit they would get may be relatively small. So there are a few um, caveats there. So again, any application where we're looking at someone struggling to eat enough food already, whether that's athletes with high calorie demands, whether it's maybe um, a female client who is pregnant right now and is trying to get enough food in, maybe it's someone who already struggles with their appetite to get enough food in to fuel what they're ever at their activity. Maybe it's someone with an athletic goal. Maybe it's someone with this, a bodybuilding goal, or maybe for other people, just their preference it doesn't work for. Right. That right. they have their life and their work schedule set up in a certain way that by trying to fit into a certain feeding window, it causes them not to be able to stick to the fundamentals around nutrition that we will try and have them doing. So eating a generally good quality diet, making sure their overall intake of calories is suitable for whatever their goal is, making sure they're eating a sufficient amount of protein and so on. If they're not able to do those things because it's, they're finding it so difficult to stick to this feeding window, it's probably not a strategy for that individual client. So there's always context and caveats. And what the practitioner should be doing is being able to say, this is a useful tool that may be able to use in some areas. Here's where I could use it or at least trial it with someone. Um, but it's not going to be the answer all of the time or even maybe most of the time. Um, and then to uh, an earlier point you made, which is really good that, to round this off, was there's a range that we see most of the human trials tend to be eight to 12 hours of that feeding window. And there's nothing to say that you have to start with any one of those numbers. And so someone could trial, let's say a 12 hour feeding window for a new client. If they really like that style of thing, then you can play around with changing it even lower. If someone says, look, this is, I, I don't like this at all. Then, you know, 
it's not going to get better by me trying to get them to eat within eight hours. So always use your best judgment as a practitioner. Think pragmatically of what is going to allow this person to eat uh, aligned to those fundamentals that we always try and hit. Danny, what I think is so important that you've pointed out is is the fact that you come across as more believable because you're not setting this up as a panacea. It's not the answer for every single thing and you should just do this. And, and we see that in so many things. It doesn't matter like whether it's uh, I'm a rower and it doesn't matter what your pathology is, rowing will help you or, or Pilates will help you or this type of feeding will help you. And it is so very much indeed different strokes for different folks in terms of, as you mentioned, adherence and compliance, but also it is not perfect for everyone for every outcome. And the fact that you point that out makes it so much more believable and to stay on theme, easy to digest when Mm. you talk about what the benefits of it truly and actually are. So thank you for that. And I just want to ask, do you have time, because we're going long because I love listening to you talk, um, do you have time at all to to maybe accept some questions from any of our live audience? Absolutely. Yeah. Happy to take any questions people have. So as all long right, as great. they want to ask any questions, let's do it. Cool. All right. Well, uh, Destiny in the chat wants to oh, know. Greg, I can't hear you. I know you're asking there, questions. I see. There well, you go. You know, if you, you unmute your mic, it helps uh, definitely <laughs> yeah. for people to be able to hear you. So uh, Destiny in the chat wants to know, what book do you recommend uh, to learn more about uh, intermittent fasting and time-restricted feeding? Um, if people are looking for a good uh, like lay audience book that gets into some of the science but is also quite readable, then uh, one of the main researchers in this area, Sachin Panda, wrote a book called The Circadian Code. Um, which would give a good overview of things related to circadian rhythms, but also how this ties into time-restricted eating. Um, He's based at the Salk Institute, and he's done a lot of the studies in this area. And that would be a good um, entryway level in to get a good overview of that area. People looking for a lay book, yeah. Perfect. And then Joanna wants to know, what do you do with alternating shifts that require a person to change their eating schedule almost daily? So one of the most challenging things is going to be any form of shift work. And probably the most challenging is where the shift changes day to day. Um, There's no real easy answer apart from some things that can say that we've done with people on on shift work is that if someone is doing a night shift, um, let's say someone is a, a nurse in a hospital and their shift starts at 8 p.m. and goes until 8 a.m., um, based on, again, theoretically what might be best, from a circadian perspective, it seems that the probably the worst time to have a large meal, particularly if it's high in carbohydrate and fat, would be right in the middle of the night. So like between, let's say, 2 a.m. and 5 a.m., let's say, or 1 p.m. and, and 5 a.m. Um, so trying to avoid large meals at that time may be beneficial. Um, so what they could do is trying to keep those main meals outside of that. So either towards the start of the shift or even before they go into work, um, or even then, uh, the time afterwards, or if they're going to eat throughout their shift, it may be beneficial to focus on high protein snacks that are relatively low in fat and carbohydrate for the reason that those detrimental impacts on metabolism of carbohydrate and fat we see 
doesn't seem to be the case with protein, at least that we're seeing from some of the sports nutrition research that you get almost complete um, digestion of protein without any real problems during the night. So it could be for their meals during that, that nighttime, keeping those to high protein, keeping their other intake either side of that. But if the, the shift is changing massively day to day, it's going to be difficult to really line those up consistently, which I think is, is what the question is more related to. So all it's going to be is a matter of on that spectrum, how close can you relatively keep them? So how can we, again, on that night shift, maybe squeeze more of them to before they go into work um, or at the start of the shift for those first couple of hours? So it's kind of mimicking where they would still be normally awake on a day shift um, and then ideally maybe not consuming food for a number of hours during that night and then keeping it more until what a normal day is on or morning on a, on a day shift is. And that's probably as, as much as you can do. Um, it's an area we do need more research, but there is a couple of groups trying to do research in this area more and more. Um, but for now, there are a few things that pop to mind. And that's, that's good because this entire conversation, Danny, all I've been thinking about is my brother-in-law, Tim, and he is uh, he works at Trader Joe's and he'll go in early in the morning, you know, four or five a.m. Uh, a couple of days a week and then he'll have a midday and then he'll close. And I'm trying to balance out on his behalf. What does this diet look like? Because I, I certainly know his sleep is thrown off. Um, if if you could if you can stay online with one and you're still thrown off on the other, does does creating at least a little bit of consistency with the diet help with everything else you think? Yeah, I, I mean, at this point, it can only really be guesswork. But I think, yeah, yeah. if you can keep consistency, both um, just from the routine of it, um, and I think it probably may, may help just keeping on track with normal good food choices because you have this set structure. Um, and then, yeah, where possible, even when on those um, later shifts, avoiding eating like large meals, particularly right in that, that middle of the night time zone is yeah. probably a good idea. Um, but, but like I say, some more answers we, we definitely need and, and strategies for that. I agree. And, and one of those strategies would be, I would like for work to provide more consistent schedules. Uh, uh, we do see that being an issue, not not just in um, you know um, uh, in in food services, which he works at Trader Joe's. We you mentioned the medical industry, and uh, there's some crazy hours in the medical industry, firefighters. Um, so the, those challenges are out there, and I'd like to see that being worked on just just contextually. Anyway, um, Greg, where are we? Do we have a, a few more quick questions we can get out and still try to close this up within an hour and let Danny get on with his day? We're actually uh, clear on questions, but a lot of people wanting to just thank both of you in the chat for uh, for a very uh, entertaining and informative uh, chat or uh, talk. So thank you. Uh, awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, I just want to point out some irony. Uh, one of the, one of the ironies in it all is uh, you mentioned probably the, one of the first things you talked about, which is autophagy. And uh, one of the strangest things about uh, autophagy or autophagy is that that just means eating. And one of the seems to be an excellent way to get your cells um, to eat things that are not good for you is by not feeding your body. I, I don't know. There's something <laughs> ironic about about not eating in order to uh, to eat the bad guys that are in there. I uh, wanted to point that out and say uh, 
express my gratitude, Danny, for, for you being on here. And shout out to Brian Sutton for connecting us. And I've always held Brian in such high regard. I think the world of him. Uh, he does an excellent job with NASM and the compiling research and connecting us with quality people. So, uh, Danny, thank you for being on. And can you please just shout out um, social media handles, websites, things like that, that people can find you and uh, and let them know let them know where they can reach you, connect with you, follow you, all that stuff. Absolutely. Uh, first, I'll I'll say right back to you. Thank you so much, Rick, for the conversation and for uh, Greg for everything you've been doing there. And also to reiterate your words about Brian, who's a fantastic guy and uh, nothing but but love for him. And yeah, any interaction I've had with NASM to this point has been overwhelmingly positive. So this has only added to that further. Uh, so thank you for the conversation. Um, for people looking to find me, they can go to the website, sigmanutrition.com. So that's S-I-G-M-A, nutrition.com. Um, if they're into podcasts, then the podcast is Sigma Nutrition Radio on any podcast app or Spotify. It's easy to find. And then social media, probably the best place to find me is Instagram, uh, Danny Lennon underscore Sigma. Um, I'm also over on Twitter if people put in my name or the handle is Nutrition Danny. Any of those places, I'm happy to take questions. Um, and yeah, if either good or bad feedback, uh, I'm happy to take. So hopefully it's all going to be good. Um, and the final thing I should mention is if people really want to nerd out on some of the details and the science in this area, um, there is a, an article I wrote going in depth um, on this that's on the Stronger by Science uh, website. So I think it's a strongerbyscience.com slash chrononutrition um, if people want to get deep into the weeds. But uh, apart from that, any of those places, hopefully, um, yeah, happy to take any questions. You're awesome. Danny, thank you so much. Um, and everyone, thank you for being on. Uh, as always, express I want to express great gratitude in you taking time out of your day and your self-directed learning, you deciding what you wanted to learn, finding ways to solve problems and to educate yourself and to help out your clients by tuning in. So I appreciate that and uh, I look to forward to continuing to support you. If you have questions or you have a concept that you want me to address either on the Facebook Live or directly about a podcast, then please reach out. You can get me at rick.richie, R-I-C-H-E-Y, at nasm.org or DM me on Instagram at dr.rickrichie, and I'm happy to follow up with you there and then deliver any other content that, that you may have that you're interested in. And with that said, um, thanks for listening. This is the NASM CPT Podcast.